Well, the first thing I think he would do would be to stand up and tell the truth. I mean, he had a great expression that was uh, just tell the truth and watch them scatter. So the further away the problem is, uh, the easier it is to postpone action on And that's essentially what we're doing. Be real. Because people in New Hampshire are really cool. I'd say get in the game. This is a problem facing your generation. You have to have a voice in the decision. Welcome to Facing the Future, brought to you by the Concord Coalition on WKXL. New Hampshire's talk radio station. I'm your host, Bob Bixby. Each week, we take a nonpartisan dive into topics related to the federal budget, the economy, and how they affect our nation's future. This week, we'll hear from another all-star panel discussion brought together by the Concord Coalition, held recently at Fresno State University in California. The panelists looked into some of the most complicated challenges facing both our economy and the federal budget. The experts included Brian Riedel, a senior fellow at the Manhattan Institute who focuses on budget, tax, and economic policy. Brian's presentation focused on reform of entitlement programs such as Social Security and Medicare. Also on the panel was Concord Coalition Policy Director Tori Gorman, who focused on projected lackluster economic growth and how immigration reform could help. We were also lucky to have on the panel Adam Schifres. Um, He is the Senior Director of Legislative Strategy at the Committee for a Responsible Federal Budget. Adam's presentation focused on how we can raise more revenue the fairest and most efficient way possible. First came the presentation of Brian Riedel of the Manhattan Institute. Basically, 77 million baby boomers are on the course of retiring right now. What that means is that the number of workers paying taxes to support each retiree was going to drop. It was five to one in 1960, three to one by 2013, and by the end of this decade, it'll be two to one. That means that by the end of this decade, each married couple will have to support themselves, their children, and their very own retiree. Think about that. Each married couple is gonna be on the hook for their very own retiree. In addition to demographics, Medicare must also deal with rising healthcare costs, which make it an even bigger budget hole. Medicaid, the program for low-income families, is also affected because a lot of senior healthcare gets paid by Medicaid. So the first thing to look at is there's a view that, well, you can't reform Social Security and Medicare because everyone's just getting back what they paid into the system. That's really not true. Um, This table shows how much a typical family at a typical income retiring in 2020 will have put in and gotten back from Social Security and Medicare. Now, this is adjusted for present value. So it's adjusted for inflation. It's adjusted for uh, the returns of present value it's all adjusted. You see the typical family is gonna come out ahead in social security, but look at Medicare. The typical family is gonna get back triple what they paid into the Medicare system. Now, when you multiply that by 77 million retiring baby boomers, you see how unsustainable it is. Here's a scary number, a couple scary numbers for you. Over the next 30 years, social security and Medicare are gonna run a budget shortfall of $116 trillion. That's $116 trillion with a T. Specifically, they're gonna take in 
$89 trillion in payroll taxes and revenues, but they're going to cost $205 trillion. These, are, these numbers are like monopoly money, but really that's the whole 30-year budget. You see the little green thing on the side, the rest of the budget's actually balanced over 30 years, but we have $116 trillion in social security and Medicare shortfalls. Now, if you just look at the spending trends from 1960 to 2050, you see this playing out. This is spending as a share of the economy. The main thing you notice is that overall spending is gonna keep rising from about 20% of GDP historically to more than 30% of GDP. And the real driver of that is the red and the blue, social security and healthcare, and then the net interest cost of having to borrow to pay for social security and healthcare. Other parts of the budget are actually getting smaller. Defense and war spending is actually dropping as a share of the economy. The, the domestic discretionary programs like education, highways, foreign aid, um, those are dropping. And other entitlements aren't a huge problem either. Really, it's a healthcare and interest issue. So here's why we need to close the gap through Social Security and Medicare reform. First, that's what's driving the problem. By 2052, the green shows that Social Security and Medicare are going to be running a shortfall of 13% of GDP. The rest of the budget in purple will be running a surplus. You just can't make up a 13% of GDP shortfall by reforming other programs. It's just too big of a gap. To put it in context, 13% of GDP today would be about $2.5 trillion. Also, you can't get there just from taxing the rich or cutting defense. If we were to just say we're going to raise taxes to, to, to close the gap, your choices would be to raise the payroll tax from 15% to 33%. Or you could raise all income tax rates by 18 percentage points, or you could impose a 30 to 40% national sales tax. Those are pretty brutal. Now, those who say, well, just tax the rich, maybe you should tax the rich, but it's not gonna close the whole gap because even if you seized all billionaire wealth in existence, you would only fund nine months of government spending. Even if you imposed 100% tax rates on everybody earning 500000 or more, you still wouldn't close the gap. In fact, even moving to another common target, even if you eliminated the entire Defense Department, not cut, but eliminated it, that would only close half the gap. So you can support these ideas. You can support taxing the rich. You can support cutting defense. It's not going to make a huge gap. The third reason to reform Social Security and Medicare is that wealthier seniors can actually absorb the cost of reforming their benefits. When Social Security was created, most seniors had few to no savings. While many still struggle, the typical senior household income today is about $84,000. In fact, most seniors have much higher incomes than the taxpayers paying the benefits. And even that's despite having usually not having a mortgage or childcare expenses. Since 1979, retiree, retiree income grew twice as fast as working class or working age salaries. 
And now there's also several million senior households that are actually million, multi-millionaires or that have incomes after retirement well into the hundred thousands. So we should absolutely protect and shield low income seniors, but the upper income seniors can afford to absorb some tweaks in their benefits. Look, I'm not saying cut anybody off. I'm saying reform the growth of their benefits, have them grow a little bit lower than otherwise. So here's my idea. Here's my, my plan to stabilize the debt. First, you squeeze out inefficiencies from healthcare because that's a win-win. It doesn't actually, it doesn't reduce benefits. Second, you trim the growth of social security and Medicare for wealthier retirees. After that, you trim other spending programs and you raise taxes for whatever gap is left. Under my plan though, no benefit reductions for the bottom 40% of seniors, no cuts to anti-poverty programs, the safety net remains intact. Non-domestic discretionary spending maintains parity with defense, no gimmicks. The first thing we do is in social security, we slowly raise the full benefit age from 67 to 69. And we trim benefits a little bit for the top 60% of seniors, just trim the growth. Some things like if you're retired and you're making 200,000 a year after retirement, you probably don't need a full inflation adjustment. On Medicare, you move to what's called a premium support system, which is actually kind of like the uh, ACA exchanges where people can shop around and have healthcare choices. That would reduce costs for the government and individuals. Premiums would actually fall according to CBO. You also reduce some Medicare B&D subsidies for the highest earning 60%. And then in Medicaid, you just cap how much states get per, per person at a, at a rate that allows governors to innovate in order to meet a slight trim in how much they receive. Other spending uh, would basically grow by inflation. Uh, other mandatory programs, discretionary spending, you just grow it by inflation and, po and population. You just don't expand it. But no cuts to anti-poverty, veterans, or military retirement. Then my plan raises taxes by about one and a half percent of GDP too, which is on top of the fact that revenues are already going to grow just as part of the baseline. You reform the tax exclusion for prov employer-provided health insurance, which means right now when you get, you don't pay taxes when your employer gives you a health care benefit, you would just gradually trim that and have some of it be taxable. I raise the payroll tax by two percentage points for Social Security and Medicare, and I eliminate a few tax gimmicks called the December extenders. Basically, my plan is to avoid a debt crisis, first stop digging, stop cutting taxes, stop increasing spending, aim for sustainable deficits of about 3% of GDP. Then, you address long-term Social Security and Medicare shortfalls because there's just not enough taxes to raise or wasteful spending to cut outside of that system. Maybe with the national debt, you also lock in today's low interest rates because we borrow using short-term borrowing and interest rates are rising, although it might be too late, rates are rising. And step four, don't forget about economic growth because you need people working, paying taxes, being prosperous in order to keep raising revenue. 
again, my, if you don't like my plan, I don't like it either. But I think it's the least bad plan for avoiding a debt crisis. And I think it's the most realistic one. You're listening to Facing the Future. I'm your host, Bob Bixby. We're hearing from a recent panel discussion at Fresno State University in California, focusing on the biggest challenges facing our economy and the federal budget. Next to present on the panel was Adam Schifras, Legislative Director at the Committee for a Responsible Federal Budget. I'm a new dad, and for me, this is a generational issue, and I feel like it's always important to state why we kind of got into this. And for me, it's it's fairness. And um, the federal budget is absolutely not a family budget, but sometimes it does help to personalize it a little bit. And I like to imagine taking my five-month-old son out to a restaurant and ordering the most expensive steak you can get, $150, all the ridiculous fixings, and a nice bottle of California wine, maybe 300 bucks, really treating myself. And, uh, you know, he's got a bottle of milk that we brought from home. And I've got a credit card with a low interest rate. And I hand it to the waiter and I eat my steak and I drink my bottle of wine and say, hey, you know what? Interest rates are low. I'm just going to put this on the credit card. And when I pass away, he can pay the bill. And that's what we're really doing to our kids is passing along our own consumption onto them. And if we're building a bridge or contributing to their education, maybe we have a little justification for borrowing. But if we're just consuming, it's really morally unfair to uh, transfer it to the next generation. So what are we going to do here today? Brian gave a fantastic, comprehensive plan. I'm not going to do that. I want to go through a few specific ideas for raising revenue uh, to pay for uh, nice things. Uh, Department of Defense, clean air, clean water. Uh, we have a society and we, we owe it to ourselves to pay for it. And I'm going to do it um, not in a comprehensive way, but to give you some food for thought and try to compare these policy options to things that you hear in the news. Um, so I'll go ahead and get started here. But I want to zoom in a little bit on um, spending and revenue, and in a minute we'll get to the 10-year budget window. Um, this is similar to a slide that Phil showed, but I just want to show revenue is just not keeping up with spending. And if we want to have the programs that Brian talked about, we're, we're going to have to make some spending cuts, but we're probably going to have to raise some revenue too. Um, just politically, we're going to have to do both. So bringing it back to the 10-year window, which is what you usually hear in the news when you hear policies talked about in Congress, uh, there's about 16 trillion in new debt projected uh, over the next 10 years or so. So how much is the right amount to reduce that? That's a philosophical question. We certainly wanna avoid a fiscal crisis or anything like that, but we don't know exactly when that would happen. So maybe we wanna stabilize the debt right at 100% of the size of the economy, we need to find three and a half trillion dollars. Maybe we wanna slope it down to 90%, it's about double the cost. And all the way to balancing the budget, um, and this is an illustrative scenario, but that's 11 and a half trillion over 10 years. So it's definitely a daunting goal, even over 10 years, not to mention 30 or 40 or 50. So what do we think about when we think about pro-economic growth tax policy? Well, there's a lot of criteria you could use, but here's a few that I'll apply today. 
besides the government's a choice, we need to raise money to pay for it. It's unfair to pass along to our kids. So whatever size government we want, over a period of years, we gotta be raising enough revenue to pay for it. And raising revenue can distort the economy and harm economic growth. So we wanna do it in the smartest way possible to maximize economic growth. And we can do that by streamlining the tax code and removing you know, unnecessary distortions, which I'll explain. We also wanna tax things that we don't want, like carbon emissions, instead of things that we do want, like income. So the first thing I wanna talk about is tax expenditures. These are all the deductions and credits that are learned throughout the tax code that pile up year over year over year. And I wanna compare them to some other categories in the budget. If you just look here at the cost of tax expenditures at 1.7 trillion. We lose more money through tax expenditures than we raise through the individual income tax. We lose more money through tax expenditures than we spend on our major healthcare programs. Um, on social security, on defense. It's, it's a huge Swiss cheese in our tax code. So here's some individual parts of the tax code. You can see how expensive they are. Um, retirement plans is the biggest one. Employer um, provided health insurance, which we'll talk about. Uh, and all the way down, you can see how expensive these are. So the first proposal I wanna talk about is pretty simple. It's limiting the value of tax expenditures. So if you were to go extreme and eliminate all itemized deductions, you'd save about 1.7 trillion. Uh, if you extend the Tax Cuts and Jobs Act uh, or the, the tax cuts that were passed under President Trump, uh, you still save about a trillion if you do that. I wanna propose something a little bit more modest. Um, so if you are in the 35% tax bracket, for example, and you have a bunch of deductions, we're only gonna allow you to reduce your tax burden by 28% instead of 35%. We're just gonna limit the value of all those deductions to 28%. And that raises about 500 billion uh, over 10 years. I'd like to put in some new taxes, 5% uh, value added tax can raise about 2 trillion over 10. Uh, this is a smart way to get revenue out of the economy because it's broad based. Um, it doesn't distort the economy very much. It taxes consumption instead of income. So it's gonna allow people to work a little bit harder as opposed to taxing their income, which incentivizes them to stay at home. And then our carbon tax, and I won't go all the way down the rabbit hole of climate change, but we need to fix it. And adding a carbon tax would be one of the most effective things that we could do. Um, in addition, whatever size of government you believe in, it's a lot smarter to tax carbon than tax income. So if you wanna balance the budget, it's much smarter to tax something like carbon uh, than increase income taxes. Although to be clear, I also think we should increase income taxes a lot, but um, not proposing that today. <laughs> Fine, uh, in addition, I wanna, I wanna talk about the tax gap. Um, this is how many, uh, this is the amount of unpaid taxes each year that people owe. Now, it's, it's huge, it's $500 billion. And it's impossible to get that number down to zero. You're not gonna have perfect tax enforcement and it wouldn't make sense to, it would be way too burdensome um, government intrusion into our lives and it just wouldn't be practical. But out of 500 billion every year that aren't paid, we can certainly get that down with some reasonable measures. So one measure that's very simple and builds on many previous federal reporting requirements um, is to ask banks to report the total amount of money that goes in 
and out of certain accounts. They have a whole form of information that they have to share with the federal government on these accounts anyway. This basically adds two little boxes to that and doesn't give away any information that you would consider super private, just how much is in and how much is out. And so instead of the IRS auditing people kind of randomly, they can say, well, your taxes don't really match what came in and out of your bank account. We're going to audit you. Doesn't mean you get punished or anything like that. Just a better way to target audits. And people are probably going to be a little bit more honest on their taxes as well. So that's, uh, I consider that an almost free 200 billion. I want to talk about reforming the way that we tax health insurance. So right now, when your employer provides you health insurance, um, that largely is not taxed. Unfortunately, that encourages employers to provide a lot of your compensation in health insurance instead of wages. And that actually has contributed to inequality as each year, uh, they're incentivized to give you a little bit more health insurance instead of that wage which you could of course spend on additional health insurance if you wanted. So if we start to equalize the treatment between health insurance and income taxation by eliminating part of this exclusion, um, we can begin to correct the ship a little bit and raise some revenue and help control healthcare costs. So as you saw earlier, Brian pointed out the big shortfalls in Medicare. It just doesn't make any sense that you shouldn't pay Medicare taxes on income you receive to buy your health insurance. Medicare is about to run out of money in a few years. So there really shouldn't be any exclusions on what you're paying Medicare tax into. We want Medicare to still be there for us in a few years. In addition, it doesn't make sense to provide a blanket income tax exclusion for whatever size health insurance plan that you want to purchase. That just gives a huge tax break to rich people who can afford really, really, really expensive health insurance. And so this option, which saves 500 billion, would say, what's the 75th percentile most expensive plan? We're gonna give you a, a tax break right up to that 75th percentile. And if you want one of the 25 most expensive plans out there, you can pay a little bit of tax on the money uh, that you use to buy your health insurance. Very reasonable option. I think in the, the reason it saves so much is because of the pot of money is, is so huge at 4.7 trillion. So these are some of the options. It gets you, you know, four and a half trillion dollars. That's enough to stabilize the debt over 10 years, make some real progress. And I wanted to give it to you in these 10 year figures so that when you see bills being debated in Congress, you can compare these numbers and say, hey, why don't they pay for that? You're listening to Facing the Future. I'm your host, Bob Bixby. We're listening to excerpts from a recent panel discussion at Fresno State University in California on future challenges to the federal budget and the economy. We'll hear more after these short messages. Welcome back to Facing the Future. I'm your host, Bob Bixby. Now, more from the recent Concord Coalition panel discussion at Fresno State University in California that focused on the most serious future challenges that will face our economy in the federal budget. Next on the panel was Concord Coalition Policy Director, Tori Gorman. I'd like to focus my remarks this evening on what I call the second of our twin challenges. 
um, Phil and uh, our previous speakers, they already discussed the dangers of our unsustainable debt. Adam talked about revenues and Brian talked about the spending side entitlements. Um, and you see that on the chart on the left. That's challenge number one. I'd like to talk more specifically about a second challenge, and that's the one on the right, uh, a future of lackluster economic growth. Um, <clears throat> forecasts vary, of course, but most economists agree that the United States is looking at a future of subpar economic growth. Historically, uh, our economy has grown at an average annual real rate of about 3%, after adjusting for inflation. But looking out 30 years from now, however, the real rate of economic growth is projected to be nearly half that, an average of just 1.7% per year, according to the nonpartisan Congressional Budget Office. So why should economic growth be a concern to us when we are staring at a mountain of debt? Well, everything else being equal, there's actually a symbiotic relationship between higher economic growth and lower deficits. If we can grow our economy faster, then we will create more jobs and more jobs lead to higher national income and higher national income in turn leads to more tax revenue for the treasury. Um, more tax revenue means smaller deficits, which in turn would require less painful tax increases like Adam talked about and less painful spending cuts like Brian talked about to get our debt and deficits down to more manageable levels. And that in turn can le lead to higher economic growth and the vir virtuous cycle just repeats itself. As this slide shows, just a half point increase in real GDP growth each year for the next 10 years from 1.7% to 2.2%, so I'm not talking about anything wackadoo, would trim a trillion dollars from our deficits and debt without having to lift a finger anywhere else in the budget. But our economy can only grow as fast as we can produce output the goods and services that other people want to purchase. And our output is constrained by two key variables, the size of our labor force and the productivity of those workers. So what do we know about these two variables in the future? Well, looking at, uh, at these two, two graphs here, uh, future productivity, I will admit, is very hard to predict. You know, who knows when the next technological advancement will revolutionize the way we work like personal computers and cellular phones did. But predicting our future potential labor force, that is doable. And we do that by tracking demographic trends. And based on current data, we are on the cusp of a significant slowdown. Our future potential labor force is projected to grow only one third as fast as it has in prior years. And that, my friends, is scary. And of course, the natural question is, why? What is causing this? And more importantly, can fiscal policy fix it? Well, let's talk about the why first. We didn't, and I think um, Brian talked about this a little bit. Like other developed economies, our population is aging. The baby boom generation has hit retirement age and they are exiting the workforce. But women in America were not having enough babies, babies who will grow up to replace 
the workers that are retiring. Fertility rates, which is what you see on this chart here, fertility rates in the United States have been declining or they've been really flat for many years, even falling below the all-important replacement rate of two babies per mother after the Great Recession. To show you how much our demographics are changing, I'm going to put up here a slide that we saw before from Phil. Over the next 30 years, the number of senior citizens in the United States will increase by 50%, but the number of people aged 24 and under, okay, those are our workers of tomorrow, that will actually decline. Wow. If this keeps up by the 2040s, okay, which is just two decades away from now, okay, 2040, who thought we'd be thinking about that? Literally two decades from now, the number of U.S. deaths will exceed the number of births. That means more people will be dying here than will be born here. And at that point, our only population growth will be solely driven by immigration. So how can we use fiscal policy to increase the size of our domestic labor force? Well, one way is to invite and attract more foreign labor into the United States. Unfortunately, however, recent trends in net migration to the United States have not been reassuring. The number of new immigrants admitted each year has fallen from over a million in 2015 and 2016 to just a little over 260,000 in 2021. Now, of course, there are lots of places to find fault for these numbers. Actions taken by the previous administration, COVID, outdated visa caps, inhospitable attitudes in regions of our country, and general administrative bureaucracy. They all contribute to a dire prediction. But if lawmakers allow the weight of these obstacles to hamstring reforms, they have only themselves to blame for the draconian tax increases and spending cuts that they will have to impose and run for re-election on to get our fiscal house in order. Immigration, it's true, it's a sensitive issue today and trust and bipartisanship are hard to find in Washington, DC. However, lawmakers can begin by building a rapport with each other and with their constituents and other stakeholders by starting with some small ball reforms. For example, right now, there is an enormous backlog of visa applications on file with the U.S. Customs and Immigration Service. Normally, this agency is largely self-funding. It pays for about 97% of its own operations with money that it generates from visa application fees. But when COVID shuttered most of their operations, an enormous backlog developed, and the agency has been unable to revise its fee structure to hire more staff. Now, Congress could step in and provide a temporary influx of discretionary appropriations to help the agency eliminate its backlog and increase the number of workers we have here in the United States. In fact, Gordon Gray at the American Action Forum has looked at this problem, and he's estimated that it would cost between three and four billion dollars total and take anywhere from two to seven years to complete, depending upon how fast Congress wants to spend the money. And that the economic benefit 
of the increased number of workers would make the initial expenditure budget neutral over the next decade. So essentially, the proposal would pay for itself over 10 years. And there are other potential solutions that deserve examination, such as we could reform the H-1B skilled worker visa program. I read in a Vox article recently that industry surveys predict the manufacturing sector alone here in the United States will need three and a half million more workers by 2025. But up to two million of those jobs are going to go unfilled because of the lack of qualified workers here in the United States. So let's fill those jobs with foreign workers who want to come here and have those skills. Another idea would be to revamp the visa program altogether in a way that prioritizes economic growth and attracts foreign workers with the skills and talents that our economy needs. This would necessarily include a robust, mutually beneficial guest worker program and a permanent visa program for highly skilled, highly educated, or entrepreneurial workers. And lastly, there's always the possibility, however slight, of a grand bargain. Sometimes it helps just to rip the Band-Aid off and do it all at one time. A comprehensive reform package that addresses all aspects of immigration, the need for, for, for more foreign workers, a pathway to citizenship for the undocumented workers and their families who are already here, and enhanced border security. So some final thoughts here as I wrap up. Number one, demography is destiny. As the fertility rate of American women dwindles, so too does our nation's fiscal health. Second, Australia and Canada have already leapfrogged the United States in making immigration a linchpin of their long-term strategy for confronting their aging populations. The United States, we are late to the table and we need to step up to remain competitive. Third, with prospects for recovery in US fertility rates, uncertain at best, an increase in net migration into the United States is the only solution to a stagnant labor force. And lastly, and perhaps most important is this. Voters and lawmakers both have a responsibility to create room for a civil and principled debate about immigration. It is in everyone's best interest to make the United States a desirable destination for people who want to work, and we should let them come. You're listening to Facing the Future. I'm your host, Bob Bixby. We'll hear more from our panelists and some audience questions from a recent uh, discussion of economic and federal budget challenges at Fresno State University in California after these short messages. Welcome back to Facing the Future. I'm your host, Bob Bixby. We've been listening today to excerpts from a recent Concord Coalition panel discussion at Fresno State University in California. The panelists each presented their thoughts on the biggest federal budget and economic challenges that we'll face in the future. Let's hear some audience questions. First, from Concord Coalition California Fiscal Lookout, Ann Cluse. The discussion was moderated by Concord Coalition Field Director, Phil Smith. When I first engaged with Concord Coalition, my daughter was six months old, which Adam, I think your son is five months old. 
my daughter's now 30 years old. So here we are 30 years later and um, the work is still important. It's still very necessary. And again, I appreciate the terrifying information that was presented. <laughs> um, at what point do we also, maybe as an organization, as a nation, need to start looking at what is falling off the fiscal cliff really mean? I mean, we're showing the charts and, charts and graphs. We are showing the what's really fiscal devastation, right? When do we start modeling what the human suffering and what that catastrophe really looks like? I'm just interested to think, is it time to take that step to show that type of suffering that's, that's imminent and coming? Thank you so much, Ann. And you know, the folks in the UK all of a sudden have seen in their own bond market what can happen, right, when these issues get out of control. But which one of our panelists would like to, or, or all of you are welcome uh, to take a stab at that? I'll start. Um, okay, Brian? You know, I, I, part of the challenge is we don't know what it's going to look like. Um, we, we know that the current trends are unsustainable. We know that at a certain point, the bond market's going to stop lending at low rates, and that's just going to drive up the debt further, which is going to drive up interest rates further. It's going to cost a lot of families a lot of money to have higher interest rates. It's going to hurt the economy. It can cause a recession. And then when you actually have to put the Band-Aid on at that point, it's going to be some painful tax hikes and spending cuts that are going to be a lot more painful than if we had just done it responsibly early. It's hard to model exactly how that will go because it's 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 there's so many variables. But I did a report last December showing what the interest rate angle could look like and the interest rate angle is really scary because the 30-year numbers that we just put out um, that we've all been quoting from the Congressional Budget Office they assume low interest rates. And as we've seen, they've already started rising. And, you know, we showed 185% of GDP, the debt goes to in 30 years. That's with interest rates of 4%. If interest rates go to 5%, you add $30 trillion over 30 years, which is like adding another defense department. Each point adds 30 trillion. So really, that's the sad note is we've been presenting the rosy scenario where Congress doesn't cut any more taxes, they don't add any more spending. There's no major crises and interest rates stay low. But modeling out how bad it's going to be, it makes me think of what the Congressional Budget Office stopped modeling beyond 30 years because they used to do 50 and 75 year modeling. And they said that the economy literally stops functioning and they can't model beyond that point. So it's, it's really tough. Thank you, Brian. Tori, did you have something? Well, I, I was just going to jump in and say, I agree with Brian in that it's very, very difficult. Part of what makes it complex for the United States is that, you know, we are the world's reserve currency. So when the rest of the world goes to hell, there's a flight to quality here in the United States. What happens when the flight to quality sucks? Um, you know, we, we just don't know what happens. You know, where does the money go? I don't know. Um, I think we... You get an idea of what happened in the UK uh, the last two weeks about what might happen. And I think the issue is, are we going to be like a frog in a pot of cold water where this heat slowly turns up and we can sort of feel the water getting warm? Uh, uh, or is it going to be a flash, you know, crisis, boom, and we're caught flat-footed without any way to, to, to change course that doesn't cause, you know, extreme pain. Um, but I will say that I think there's one thing that you all can do. Um, that is uh, 
you know, we've got another presidential election coming up. I mean, everybody's focused on the midterms, 2022. I get it. But we've got another presidential election coming up. And just beyond the presidential election, there's a whole bunch of tax cuts that are going to expire unless Congress acts. And I guarantee you that every politician who's running for president, senator, Congress, whatever, governor, well, not governor, is going to be falling all over themselves, promising to extend those tax cuts. What you need to be doing, and those tax cuts affect you. I mean, they're the they're the individual income tax cuts that were passed as part of the Trump tax cuts. It's not the the business stuff. That's well, some of the business stuff expiring, but it's very little. You know, a majority of the tax cuts that are expiring affect individuals and small business owners. You need to stand up when your politicians come, when the the candidates come to your town and say, oh, "I promise to do this." You need to stand up and say, "Okay, but how are you going to pay for that?" That's where you get the discussion going, because as long as members of Congress, presidents think that they don't have to address the problem, they can kick the can down the road because voters are going to punish them. And they're not stupid. They're not going to do anything about it until there's a crisis. So we have a responsibility as voters to hold their feet to the ground, to hold them uh, 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 responsible for the answers. Okay. Any other questions from our audience? Come on down, please. Uh, Richie Knight. I had fully prepared to come up here and ask you about Social Security, but then uh, Tori derailed my brain. Um, on your immigration presentation or piece of your presentation, as a son of an immigrant um, and being in the congressional district that has the largest amount of Latinos in the country, um, your topic was definitely, I think, spot on to where uh, a huge opportunity that our country is just leaving on the table. You know, is there a way at looking at what other countries have done? Is there a way to unpoliticize, which I feel mm-hmm. like is impossible, but you know, take the political aspect and more of an economic look at immigration reform and how do we get that buy-in? Can we look at what other countries have done? You know, are there things that are just clearly evident that we can just push in people's faces? Like, what is it that you think could turn the page there? Yeah. Um, that's, yeah, huge numbers. So I, I admit I am not an immigration expert. I'm a budget expert. So in terms of, of you know, potential solutions, again, I, 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 I think we need to start with small ball. I think there are small things that we can do just with some discretionary appropriations. But yes, I think there are things that we can learn from, from, from nations like Canada and Australia. They have their own you know, cultural strife issues that they've had to deal with. And I think we can learn from that. But ultimately, this type of discussion, you know, it begins at the top, right? The, 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 top, the top of the pyramid, you know, a president sets the tone for the conversation. Within a state, the governor sets the tone for the conversation. And voters, we just need, I mean, this is the last comment I made. We need to, we need to turn the volume down, okay? And we need to be able to separate, for example, what's happening at the southern border with what we need in terms of, of economic growth. And we need to turn the volume down and allow people to have a civil conversation about what is obviously something that would benefit all of us. Thank you, Tori. So uh, we've come to the bewitching hour, and uh, I know we've heard from Brian and Tori during Q&A, so I want to give Adam one last chance to have the final word if you want to say anything before we close out, Adam. I, I agree with um, much of what Brian and Tori said. Um, I'll just say we're going to have to do all of them. I, I'm a huge supporter of immigration reform. I'd be for going way beyond what, what Tori said. 
But in one of her earlier slides, she showed, you know, a half point increase in, in economic growth. That's something on the order of like doing all the immigration we did in the past 80 years, again, in the next 10 years. So immigration will be a tremendous help, but it's a small improvement compared to the spending and tax adjustments that we're going to need to make. And ultimately, as you saw on Brian's charts, you know, if Social Security and Medicare are unsustainable, people are going to come here, they're going to be amazing contributors to our economy, but their benefits will be unsustainable too down the road when they retire. So we've got to make the structural changes as well. We got to do, we got to do all of it. It's not easy. So thanks for listening to us today. You're listening to Facing the Future. I'm your host, Bob Bixby. We've been hearing excerpts from a recent panel discussion at uh, Fresno State University in California, looking at some major federal budget and economic challenges uh, to come. If you missed any of today's program, look for video from the entire event online at conqueredcoalition.org. That's all the time we have for this week. Join us again next week for another edition of Facing the Future. And from all of us here at the Concord Coalition, have a happy Thanksgiving. Thanksgiving.